Welcome to Plodcast, episode 36. Welcome aboard. Thanks for coming. We really appreciate it. So I want to spend some time talking about um, uh, our president, Donald Trump, and I want to talk about the problem that he is presenting to responsible, judicious Christians, that problem being the next election. Not, I'm not talking about the congressional elections this year in the fall of 2018, uh, but rather talking about uh, Donald Trump's re-election as president in 2020. So he's just recently uh, appointed his uh, campaign manager. Uh, he's indicated he's going to run again. He wants to be president for a second term. All the indications are that he wants to be president for a second term. And uh, this this is a um, problem. So why, it's a, why is it a problem? Well, uh, I'm, and I'm speaking here as someone... Who did? I did not vote for Donald Trump the first go-round. I didn't vote for him in the primaries, and I didn't vote for him in the general election. And I didn't vote for him because of character issues and because of believability issues. I didn't vote for him because of character, and I didn't vote for him because I didn't believe his um, ostensible conversion to conservative principles. I, uh, I've, my entire adult life, I've, I've become accustomed, as, as many conservatives have been accustomed, to uh, go along, and not go along, but to put up with uh, the charade that oftentimes happens on the Republican side where the candidate runs to the right and governs to the middle. So they, uh, they get elected and then they go to Washington and then they grow an office or they go native or they do something. They start doing, they start doing things that they never talked about doing when they were running. All right, so the the established pattern is to run right, govern to the middle, and I don't. And and the, the governing to the middle might be because that's what they were secretly wanting to do all along, or it may be that the establishment forces in Washington were too much for them, and they were outmaneuvered or outgunned or just you know whatever. They may have, may have been secretly in favor of the compromise, or they may have been opposed to it, but were outmaneuvered. Um, uh, Ronald Reagan was a, a conservative's conservative, and so he ran. If you, if we had a, um, measured all this in, on a scale of one to ten, you know, the the zero being zero or one being a communist, and um, a ten being a true blue conservative, um, Ronald Reagan ran as a ten, but he governed as a as an eight, let's say, um, or. Uh, Bush the second ran as an eight and governed as a six. Okay, so what what um, what are we to do with the fact that Donald Trump shows up, the uh, the implausible conservative shows up, and he runs as a six. He, he's running as a six. I had every I didn't believe him, and had every ex- expectation that he would run as far right as he wanted to and then would govern to the left of that. And it was conceivable to me that he could run as a six and govern as a three. It was even conceivable to me that he might wind up uh, to the left of Hillary Clinton or where Hillary Clinton would have been had she been elected. So uh, despite, I, I, you know, I'm uh, grateful, grateful, grateful that Hillary was not elected, but faced with the... Um, Evidence. I didn't. I didn't know that that Donald Trump was uh, going to do anything different. I, th- I thought, okay, that we've got a long pattern of 
Republican politicians running to the right, governing to the middle. And so I had ex- I had a good expectation that Trump was going to wind up to the left of wh- wherever it was he was talking about himself being. And that was um, not, not, uh, not something I wanted to throw my support to. All right. So that's that's what we expected. That's what I expected anyway. Um, now, the Heritage uh, Foundation is a conservative think tank in Washington, D.C., and they, um, they put together a list of sort of a punch list of, oh, it's over 300 items, things that they wanted the president to do when he was elected. Uh, Heritage did this for the first time when Ronald Reagan was elected. And by this point in uh, Reagan's presidency, he had um, he had instituted something like 49 percent of of the Heritage Institute's punch list for him. Uh, at this date, uh, Donald Trump has instituted something like 64 percent of their punch list for him. You know, the the conservatives' wish list. Now, at the same time, there's all there are all sorts of um, there's a gaudy sideshow caused by Donald Trump's feuds with people and his his tweet storms and the White House personnel that get sacked or forced out and you know there's there's sort of the circus wagon uh, part of this but when you when you back away and and you don't look at how he's carrying on or who he's feuding with and you just look at the judges that are being appointed or the regulations that are being cut or the regulatory agencies that are being told to stand down and you and you look at you look at it you think my goodness there are, Trump ran against a number of people in the primary uh, who had a far better claim than he has uh, to the label conservative so um, far better far better claim and yet I'm seeing more conservative policy measures instituted than I had any right to expect would ever be instituted, regardless of who was elected. So this is, for the first time uh, in my memory, we've got a politician of some importance governing to the right of where he ran. So it's like he ran as a six and he's governing as an eight or eight, eight, eight or nine. And, and that's not because He's a secret ideological conservative. You, you know, he'll he'll say things that uh, about economics or his his support of the Kilo decision or his um, his uh, an recent announcement of tariffs on on steel is his uh, suspicion of um, a free trade and, and these these sorts of things. Um, his uh, indicate to me that he's not a decided, principled conservative. And that means I don't know why this is happening. I don't know. Uh, I don't know where this is coming from. Um, but I do think that we ought to admit that it's showing up here and it's coming from somewhere. Uh, the people at Heritage uh, were not the kind of people that would have um, endorsed Donald Trump, but they're looking at their list, going, "Huh, whoa, what, what's, what is going on?" So, how does this cause a problem? Well, the problem is in 2020. So um, let's assume, and things are erratic enough, and in, there's enough upheaval 
that this might not be the way it goes. So grant that. But let's just, we should start talking about it now. We should start thinking about it now because I think the next presidential election is going to be on top of us before before we we are ready for it. Um, If the first year of Donald Trump's presidency is a harbinger of the next two years, okay, if if this first year is like the next two, in other words, if we have three consistent years of this kind of thing, and at this point, two years from now, the Democrats are in the middle of choosing who they're going to run, who they're going to put forward. And all the indications are that they're that the hard left, I mean, the hard left has got control of the party now. So that means that the Democrats are going to be deciding between uh, their Bolshevik and their Menshevik, you know, which which kind of communist are they going to run? And Donald Trump is has got three years of this amazing conservative record. You know, all the gaudiness and all the feuding and all the Twitter spats and so forth, notwithstanding, what are Christian, what are responsible, diligent Christians going to do? The character issues are still there. The character issues are still a thing. But one of the reasons why character matters is that you, you don't want to elect a dishonest person uh, to the, to any office because they might do the you know, eight to six or the the ten to eight on the register. They might double cross you. They might go native in office. They they might um, grow in stature in the in the eyes of the Washington press corps, which is the last thing you want. So, though that's that's a real problem. Okay, that's a real problem, and it remains a real problem that you have someone with the apparent obvious character deficiencies that Trump has. Uh, but at some point, we have to um, consider the wisdom of the Lord's parable about the two boys who were told to go work in the vineyard, and one said, I'll go, and didn't go, and the one other one said, I won't go, and, and then did. So, uh, I'm, not, I'm not proposing to answer this question myself yet. Like, what, are you, what am I going to do if, if, Trump, <laughs> if, if it's Trump versus some commie uh, in the next election? Uh, what am I going to do? I what I want to do is start Christian responsible Christians talking about it, which is a very different thing than shrieking about it. I don't I don't want a shrieking about it or calling us calling one another names over this. I I think it's a um, a real challenge. I think I think we ought to talk about it. And so I'm not announcing what I'm going to do because I, right now I frankly don't know what I'm going to do. But I know what the issues are, and I know what's I. I, I want to be willing to admit what's actually happening, and uh, and I want to measure it as we go, and I want to look at the next two years uh, very closely. So my book review um, this time around is uh, called C.S. Lewis's Dangerous Idea. Uh, it's by a gent named Reppert, Reppert, and he is a philosopher, and he is analyzing and interacting with um, C.S. Lewis's argument from reason. C.S. Lewis, Lewis's argument from reason. 
So uh, this argument that Lewis advances in, uh, in the early chapters of his book, Miracles, I think it's chapter three in Miracles, uh, and which I've noticed uh, is an argument that surfaces in a number of other places. Um, it, it comes up in Surprise by Joy. It's, it was, this argument was one of the reasons why, uh, why and how Lewis was converted. It comes up in his first Christian book, which is The Pilgrim's Regress. It comes up in uh, a number of his essays. C.S. Lewis returns to this argument from reason again and again. It, it comes up in, uh, in mere Christianity. And, and this is, uh, well, let me, tell you, let me tell you a little story about um, my uh, learning of this argument. And this will be, I think, illustrative of uh, part of the problem, uh, part, of the, part of the challenge of understanding this, this, this argument. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, decades ago, actually, uh, one of the first books I wrote was a little book called Persuasions, and it was a, the subtitle is A Dream of Reason Meeting Unbelief, and there's a, a road and a character named Evangelist talking to different people walking along the road, and he's engaging with them, talking to them about various things. And uh, uh I sent um, I sent a copy of this book to uh, a guy who ran at the time. Uh, well, it used to be called uh, Puritan uh, Puritan Reformed Books. It was a, like a monthly catalog that came out on newsprint. This was way before the internet, and um, and then later that catalog was called Great Christian Books. And so uh, I sent a copy of this book that we had just published. Uh, uh, to this gentleman, and he very kindly included it in his catalog. Um, so I was that was big that was big for me at the time, and and so I um, got my copy of the catalog that it was going to run in, and I flipped to the place, and I, and he had written the copy for the inclusion in the catalog, and he described it as it was something like this is a fine little introduction uh, to Vantillian apologetics, and I, I looked at that, and I thought. It is really. Um, I'd never. I'd heard of Van Til, but I'd never read any Van Til, and and uh, so here I was in print, uh, argue. You know, as an advocate of Van Tilian apologetics, and um, I thought, yikes. I, so I I quickly went and um, ordered a copy of Defense of the Faith by Van Til and read it and liked it. You know, I breathed a sigh of relief. Okay, <laughs> all right. I I liked it. Um, but then the question comes up: If I if I didn't if I were not a presuppositional thinker, if I were not trained um, through my reading of Van Til, how did this uh, fellow come to the conclusion that I was a Van Tilian or that I was writing uh, introductory Van Tilian stuff? Well, the the reason was I was um, uh, utilizing what I had learned from Lewis, uh, particularly in Miracles. This is Lewis's argument from reason. If, if we are nothing but matter in motion, if the materialist naturalist is correct, and all the cosmos is, is a blind concourse of atoms, um, you know, sort of cascading down the corridors of time, then there, we have no basis for taking any particular grouping of those atoms and saying though that thought is true or that configuration of atoms 
has a truth value or can generate a statement that has a truth value. So if my, if my brain is thinking Christian thoughts simply because that's what these chemicals do at this, under this pressure and at this temperature, then I have no reason to believe my thoughts to be true. If, uh, and, and that doesn't change if my thoughts are materialist thoughts. In other words, uh, my thoughts happen to be Christian, but that's because these chemicals do Christian things at this temperature. But if I'm a, if I'm a materialist, I have to give the same account. The materialist has to say that, that Wilson is thinking Christian thoughts because that's what his chemicals do under these physical conditions. But then he has to say the same thing about himself. That's what these atoms do. Now, if that's the case, though, if that's what these atoms do under these conditions, then he has to say, and hence, I have no reason for believing my thoughts to be true, and hence, I have no reason for believing my thoughts to be composed of atoms. He cuts off the branch he is sitting on. Now, that's, that's the argument. Uh, uh, I've used the illustration before. If you, if you take an atheistic bottle of Mountain Dew and an atheist, uh, a theistic bottle of Dr. Pepper and shake them up both vigorously and put them on a table and they both foam over, they both fizz over, which one's winning the debate? Well, neither one is winning the debate because they're not debating. They're simply fizzing. And if they're simply fizzing, then that's, and that's what the atheist, that's what the atheistic materialist says the universe is. There's no such thing as reason. So if he's saying there's no such thing as reason, then I can dismiss, um, I can dismiss any responsibility I might have listening to his reasoning. All right, so if he says there's no such thing as reasons, there's no such thing as reason, and here are my reasons for uh, arguing this. You don't even you don't need to pay any attention to what follows. So that's Lewis's idea. It comes up again and again and again. Uh, some people have made a uh, a big deal out of the fact that a philosopher at the Socratic Club, a philosopher named Elizabeth Anscombe, um, uh, replied to Lewis's argument. And Lewis, as a response of her, as a response to her criticisms, um, uh, adjusted or edited his phrasing of his argument in his book *Miracles* in the next edition of *Miracles*. Some people have blown that way out of proportion and have said that. And then, because Anscombe beat him in the debate, he uh, he went off and started writing children's stories, his tale between his legs. Um, Reppert in this book. This this whole book is the work of a Christian philosopher who's very carefully treating this argument, and he he's doing it as a philosopher. And if you've and you'll recognize the uh, uh, approach if you've had any um, experience uh, reading philosophy, reading modern philosophy. But he's very careful. He's very diligent, and he shows that um, that Lewis adjusted some of his he made some of his points uh, clearer in his uh, adjustment to Ans- Anscombe's criticisms, but by, by no means did he abandon the argument. It's a, it's a very fine argument. I think it's a knockdown argument, and I commend um, Robert's book to you. So, hamartiology it is. We are continuing our series on hamartiology. We're in episode 
36 of the podcast, and uh, want, and we come now to the word uh, aladzan, aladzan. It means boaster, which is how it is rendered in Romans 1.30, in the midst of another Pauline list of sins, including, but not limited to, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, there's our word, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, and so on. And in the perilous times, Paul says, men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers. That's in 2 Timothy uh, 3.2. Vainglory always seeks to puff itself up, but let him who wants to boast, boast in the Lord. I think boasting of some sort is inescapable. The glory of some sort is inescapable. But, but Scripture tells us that when we boast, we need to boast in the wisdom and power and virtue of another. If we boast in our own name, if we boast in our own prowess, if we boast in our own abilities, we are doing what Paul prohibits here. I said in a previous uh, uh, episode of From Archaeology that sins are like grapes. They come in bunches. Uh, Paul characteristically clusters them together here as he's talking about them. And, uh, and w- what we want to do is we want to avoid the folly of Nebuchadnezzar who stands on the city walls and says, is this not great Babylon that I have built? Well, God struck him with madness, and he, and he uh, lived as though he were a cow for a number of years uh, until, he was ab- until he was able and willing to give glory to the God of heaven. So boasting is a form of insanity. Giving glory to God is the heart of every sane response. So, boasting is out. God in the time of the sickness. God in the You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.